Fresh Air production. So, Nihal, how are you doing? Yep, good. Very, very good, Dexter. Very good. Yeah, we're into it now. We're into it. We've got a rhythm going. Yeah. So, listen, Neil, our producer, who isn't with us actually today, has said, given strict instructions not to mess about, that we've got to get straight to it. But we should just say this is the 100 Types of Human podcast. And we kind of talk about things that are important to us, but also, I think, things that make us angry. And in the last week or so, both of us have been off Twitter for 48 hours because of something that certainly made me furious, which is this person who I've never come across, to be honest, Nihal. You, I'm sure you have, Wiley. But, yeah, I've definitely yeah. come across many times. Yeah, see, I, see I, I'm not cool enough. <laughs> I'm just a human rights lawyer. I'm not cool enough to know anything about this dude. But what he was saying, and I saw some of the stuff... And I wanted to climb into the screen and try to stop him, really. So, mm. yeah, I mean, how, I mean, you know him. You know that niche much better than I do. What's been the response over there at your end? Well, the reason that we're going to speak to the two gentlemen we're about to speak to, Paul Samuels and Robert Guterman, is because one thing that struck me about the whole incident with the MC in question was that it really hurt a lot of my friends who were Jewish because they felt as though somehow that virulent anti-Semitism that was on display wasn't being taken seriously enough. It took some time for the social media company to take it down. Then he went on to other social media, then he came back on there and it was just kind of, was just kind of unraveling. And, uh, there, and there was a silence. There was a deafening silence. And if you compared it to the almost wall-to-wall, and we're not trying to create friction between two different minorities here, but if you compare it to what happened with, and rightly so, with Black Lives Matter, there was a difference, you know? You know and I was, I was pretty quick to tweet about it and put it on my social media, yeah. how disgusted I was by it. Yeah. Well, I, I only knew about it because of you. I only knew about it because of you. Right. Because it can't. Well, you'd never through. heard of this particular no. MCs. No, it was because it, you so. you were on it and you spoke out and came out about it. And then I followed it and I was just appalled that, that nothing was being done. I mean, it's just. It's outrage. It was mm. actually outrageous, frankly. So let's speak to Robert and Paul now. Hi, gents. Good evening. Afternoon, evening. Good to see you both. Paul, can, can I ask you what was your reaction to what you saw on Twitter? My initial thoughts were it's Wiley. And then I phoned a few guys and I said, listen, Wiley's going. And they were like, yeah, it's Wiley, Paul. Like, it'd be over in a minute. It'd be over. No one's going to care. And I was like, okay. And then during the evening, my phone was getting hotter and hotter and hotter as I was getting calls from colleagues, you know, my Jewish colleagues and other people that were just phoning me saying, well, what are you guys going to do about this? You know, you run, you know, you run anti-racist organisations, you're involved, what are you going to do? You know, and, and I was like, at the moment, I don't know what to do. So as I watched it and, and, and some of what he, a lot of the things he was saying were so horrendous. And he, he'd obviously done some pretty dark research. You know, he, he was going to places of 
of, of, of the, the worst tropes that, that I've seen in a very, very long time. And we went, we all thought there's a few people that got together on the phone and we decided that we should act and we should, we should form, get a letter together of disgust and, and get this out and, and address it because, you know, you're, ne- you're, you're always taught to, to not be silent. And, and that's what that came from, that whole letter that went to the media last, on the weekend that, that got a lot of attention. I'm not saying that that direct tweet is that, you know, that could lead to violence. And that is the point I'm tr- we were trying to make, is that it starts with that, it ends up with someone being influenced, and maybe a lot of the community around Wiley, a lot of the, the black community... Had, had had silenced him in their own world and had decided that he was cancelled. And that's what I was told numerous times during the week, Paul, he's cancelled. And I was like, that's cool. You 45 guys have cancelled him. What about the half a million people that are reading his stuff? What about when he says, I'm going to meet you in Golders Green and the Jewish Defence League have to put extra people on the streets to make sure the Hasidim are okay? Like, that's not... You know, that's not just okay. That's not, you know, that's not being cancelled. You know, so I, and I think there was and and slightly is a rub between what was perceived to be an attack on Wiley, which should have been and is and, and has no way mentioned Wiley in any of the letters that we sent out. It was all based around the disgusting tropes that were going out there and what they could do and how the social media platforms were ridiculously slow at taking him down. And that was 10 hours on Twitter. You know, that's insane. Look, we can see how angry you're getting because you're banging on the desk and people can hear that. Robert, Robert, what were your feelings about what he did or, or how did you become aware of what was going on? I noticed that his management company parted ways with him very quickly. And that was reassuring on one level and that people were taking notice and not just ignoring it completely. But from a personal level, I, I just blocked it off and didn't want to let it affect me. One thing that's interesting for me, do you feel as though, as someone who grew up with a father, Robert, who was constantly fighting this every day of his life, that we had made significant progress? I think you know, Dad's thing was actually more about bringing people together rather than seeing the differences. You know, he started in Manchester, he started the Muslim Jewish Forum, he started the Indian Jewish Association, the Council of Christian Jews, the Black Jewish Forum, all these organisations that he was heavily involved in in, in starting and organising was about actually bringing people together rather than fearing, you know, so that, so that people would understand each other more and, and get what the differences were and accepting the differences and moving on with the differences. Do I fear it every day? I, I think... I think, you know, I walk down the road and people don't look at me because I look fairly, you know, Caucasian and the old middle-aged balding man. <laughs> so I don't get that Im- immediate look of the racism that I know black friends get and Indian friends get. And, and, but I think, is it there? Yes, it's always there as an undercurrent. There's always something. There's always a little comment that people think are funny that's a bit snidey that's... So I think there's always that thing of you can never forget, you can never let it happen again, and you, you've got to protect everybody, not just, you know, the, the indiv- individually all the groups need protection. 
How did your father teach you, Robert, to deal with anti-Semitism? It's interesting because it was by, as I say, it was by example rather than actually. He didn't sit down and say, do this and do that. He would, he would teach by example. He was, he was very much of the belief of educate, 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 educate people in what's wrong, educate people in, in what, I, you know, as I said before, celebrating our differences. I don't know, it sounds very corny, but it is, it is, his thing was, his thing was about, he just, he'd seen it building in Germany as a child and he didn't want to see it again. And he wanted to do everything he could to stop it happening again anywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, I'd like, folks, I'd like to explore that a little bit. I think it's such an important story that the history is critically important. But I think, Nihal, it it would be really useful just to... No, who who on earth are these people we're talking to, actually? Robert and Paul. So we haven't actually done those introductions, have we? No, no. We'll do it now. You're right. I mean, yeah. Paul Samuels, record company man for a generation now, what, coming on 25 <laughs> years, right? <laughs> wow. In the record industry. Yeah, uh, I remember Records. vinyl. Vinyl. It's all about vinyl. vinyl. Never heard of what it, but, I, but it'll catch on. It'll catch on. Mm. But... Paul, not Atlantic's just that. Big. Atlantic's big, is it? For people who aren't music heads. That's you know, very true. Yeah, we is, should is, explain. Is, Atlantic is Records, big, yeah. Who, who are their sort of, you know, fame? Who I, an uncle person like me, who would I know? Well, you'd go you're from like, uh, Cardi B to Led Zeppelin or Led Zeppelin to Cardi B, I think maybe is the, the right way around. Wow. So, yeah, no, okay. I mean, for, and James, I can't forget James Blunt, surely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who Paul works with quite closely, quite, very, closely very closely, very closely. Okay, okay. And Robert, for you, I mean, you're you're in the in I guess an interface between branding and music. Yeah, I've worked across putting partners into festivals for twenty odd years. Being yeah, just loving the live experience and loving the live music and and just wanting to be part of it. Couldn't, couldn't play an instrument, so decided to find a way of getting involved. <laughs> that's, that's for all of us. That's, the reason that I wanted both of you here today, Robert, was because of a, of a speech you gave 13 years ago in front of thousands of people. I mean, thousands of people. Can you tell us about that speech that you gave? Yeah, it's, so as I mentioned before, my dad was hugely involved in community relations. He got an MBE for his endeavours and it was there was a, a wasn't called rock against racism there was an anti-racism march in victoria park uh, in london and he was had been involved in some of the build-up to it and the people involved asked me if i would come along speak briefly about that and do a one minute silence for the people that had died in the holocaust because dad was a he'd escaped from germany just before the war so I just, it wasn't very long, but I just stood up there and, and told a couple of things that he told me about what life was like in the build-up to the war in Germany and why he didn't want anything to be forgotten. And Paul, the reason you're here is not just because you've been a record industry person, but also you have been incredibly involved in the fight against hate and bigotry. And by that, sometimes I often mean... Uh, an actual fight <laughs> against yeah. against uh, uh, bigotry as well. Tell us about that, about your your the roots of you getting into that. Well, I think it it sort of came from 
an understanding from my father who we worked together in a mar- on a market store and, I, and my father always said to me that you're an immigrant and, and you should always be standing next to immigrants because we have to stand together and that's something you've got to learn and he, you know and that comes from the explanation of the holocaust and what happened my, my father you know came here what well, was born in 28 and his parents came here in nine somewhere between 1897 and 1901 so we came here before so we were complete aliens my father said that his father told him some horrific stories but during that time of me working in the market was the rise of the National Front and the National Front selling the British Bulldog on the street and they would come and sell the, try and sell their paper in the market and try and stand on the corner of Morecambe Street where we were in East Street to provoke us. And what was amazing is I saw, you know, our friends in the market all standing together to run them out and, and to push them out of the market and we wouldn't have it. And I think from that day, I saw my father making, being intimidating with a big lump of wood, saying to these people, if you don't move, we're going to kill you. And, and you're not here. To, you can't sell your paper in this street. And we drove them out. And that was the big, that to me was my first, I saw a man standing in the street selling a paper saying the Holocaust was a lie, a Jewish lie. And he was shouting it at us on my stool. And I think that moment, I was just, my dad was like, you can't have these people. You've got to challenge them and you've got to stand up to them. And, and that sort of, that was ingrained in me. My, my dad wasn't an activist like Robert's dad, but he was just a, he just had a, a way that he made sure I knew that to do the right thing. You know, that, that was always his, he said, you've got to stand up for other people because people didn't stand up for us. You know, and it was that that kind of basic thing, and and like Robert said about his father, just be together with other people. Don't don't see differences. You know, enjoy you know other people's cultures. Because he grew up here when we you know when my, his parents came here from Romania, they were aliens. You know, they were stared at. They didn't. You know, it was very. He said it was a very bizarre. Growing up in England at that point was very very strange. He was born in twenty eight. So it was a, a tough time, you know, in Stamford Hill. Yeah. I mean, you know? I, I, think, I think what, for me, what's interesting about all this is I think what Robert was saying about the... I think the word used, Robert, was undercurrent. And it's, it, it's interesting to know how much it is just an undercurrent or actually it's getting worse and worse. Because if you look at these statistics and, you know, just trying to put what Wiley has done into some kind of contemporary historical context, when you look at uh, Britain, we had in 2019... Uh, the last year we've got statistics for, we've got more anti-Semitic incidents than in our previous history. When you look at Canada, in Canada they've had increases in anti-Semitic violence and other incidents for the last four years, and it's at record levels. When you look at the United States and look at the Anti-Defamation League and the work they've done, again, more anti-Semitic incidents than any other 
year that they've been monitoring. And those are kind of in Anglo-Saxon countries. If you go in Europe, you'll remember, I know, that at Yom Kippur last year in East Germany, you had Stefan B., who tried to attack a synagogue, kill two people. In fact, they weren't Jewish people, but he did want to kill Jewish people. And so I think it's interesting to try to decode and understand the moment. I don't, I, I, you know, I accept what, what people say, that there may be issues about Wiley, but the tropes that he is using, they are becoming, particularly on social media, very prevalent Indeed. And that's something I think we need to think about. We need to understand why is that happening? Why is it happening right now? And I think that's an interesting conversation to have. That's an interesting question. Why, Paul, is it happening, do you think? Now, why is it growing? That's so, yeah. I mean, as Dexter was speaking, yeah. I mean, this is something that I've, we all unfortunately look at every day. And, and, you know, I don't know if you noticed today, I think it was very early this morning that Jewish privilege was a hashtag on Twitter this morning. So, you know, hashtag Jewish privilege. So I think the perception that who's that, there's a very, very, very good bunch of very bad people doing a lot of work online with a hell of a lot of money. And, and they're working very, very heavily and they're working cleverly and they're, they're lying and they're dropping the seeds that we know were there before that were done in the paper or on the radio or in words of mouth last time. Now they're using the internet and I, I'm, I am scared. I am, I am scared because they are very well organised. One thing my dad said to me was don't believe in human nature. Human nature, don't trust it because it killed six million people and they turned their back and they were silent. Yeah, I think the thing is, Paul, you know, you're right. You said about the, the right or the alt-right winning. That's how they won before. The, how they won before, because the people who opposed them and who were targeted and persecuted and victims weren't organised and didn't quite appreciate the scale of the threat. And I think if we learn anything from history, we should not underestimate how dangerous a moment this is. I, I'd really I think, interested... Yeah, go on. Go I, think, I, think, I think that you... It's a really valid point because, you know, everybody's been going on about pandemic, all the problems that that's caused and health and everything else. But what everybody's... I think is missing or what's going to come is it's what we're going into now. The health issues are awful, but what we're going into is going to be worse. And I think that that, that drive of people to find somebody to blame and wherever they can put that blame, they will be looking for someone to blame it. The economy will crash. Well, you know, the Jews are doing all right out of it. It will be, the, again, it will be the same old tropes that come up because it's just an easy target. It's an easy thing to say. And it's an easy thing to say that this one's, you know, running this company and this one's doing that. And I think that's my biggest fear that's coming out of it. And it was pretty much from early on, from when the lockdown started, I suddenly started seeing what was going on. I suddenly realised where we were heading and what this would mean. And I think, I think that is the thing that we need to be so careful of now. Yeah, and it's not, the thing about it is, it's, it's, it's not new. And one of the things no. I did, when, you know, Nihal and I were off Twitter 48 hours one of the things I was looking at was uh, the history of all of this. And something I, I didn't know 
was that, you know, in 1348, when we had, you know, the terrible pandemic of the Black Death, there were two, I don't know whether you knew this, Nihal, there were two explanations for why the Black Death was happening. One was that it was an unfortunate conjunction of uh, Jupiter and Saturn, or two planets, had gone in, so astrologically it was something that was messing up with our mojo. That was explanation one. Explanation two, however, was Jews were poisoning the water wells. That's the extra, and there, as a result of that, Robert, there were massive uh, murders of Jewish people right across Europe. Now, when you look at Twitter, and there, and I was when I went back on Twitter, when it was it on Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever it was last week, you look and you put in about causes of COVID again, some kind of Jewish conspiracy, and so here you go again. And I just think that we need to be more organised. We need to understand the scale of the threat and we need to fight. And this is why we wanted to do this episode out of sequence, because I think both Nihal and I feel very strongly about it. Do you think, though, that anti-Semitism isn't seen as much of a problem? We asked this, we asked this of, of a, another audience that I broadcast to about the silence around it. And one of the things one of the listeners said was, well, anti-Semitism is seen as punching up. Racism is seen as punching down. So you're oppressing a minority. Whereas if you're being anti-Semitic, you're a kind of attacking people who are actually okay, which is a very dangerous way to think, isn't it, Paul? And that presumably is something that you've come across before. It's actually the conversation, unfortunately, the very conversation that I've had last week. It's, it's, it's seen as what, what was bizarre is having conversations with my black colleagues that were based around, I don't quite understand what anti-Semitism is or anti-Jewish racism is. And I'm kind of like, whoa. So you don't understand, a black man doesn't understand that, that's worrying to me. I can tell you that when I first met my wife, my wife is black, I have two mixed race children, mixed heritage children. And, you know, she said to me, one thing you'll learn is that you can, you're, you're, I'm black 24 seven and you're a Jew and you will start talking and waving your arms around and talking away like you usually do <laughs> in a restaurant. And that's the only, that's the only time you'll ever be, that's the only time that everyone will know. And I said, well, that, that's not really true. My argument is all hate is disgusting and, and all hate stand, I stand against it all. And all the work I've ever done is not focused just on racism. It's focused on anti-Semitism. It's focused on Islamophobia, homophobia. And I, I, I don't want to tolerate any of it. And I think, you know, some of the discussions around Wiley were based on it's not as bad as George Floyd. Uh, and my point was, I never said it was like George Floyd. I said what he was doing will lead to that. What he was doing will lead to hate. It will lead to things that we don't want to hear. We don't want to know that a scenic Jew got stabbed in Golders Green by some kid who's inspired by somebody retweeted and retweeted and retweeted and saw some terrible things. And, and, and that's the fear is that we are getting into a discussion about how and um, what is hate? Where should it sit? 
it should it you can't decide that anti-semitism isn't as bad as racism or racism is what you know you just can't you can't start doing that i'm i'm really scared that we're having a conversation like that because it's divisive and it's coming from the far right that's their move let's divide well, and rule. well i but but paul on that i think that's such an interesting point i <laughs> It's not, I mean, what I think is particularly worrying is I don't think it's just coming from the far right. I think it's much more mainstream than that. And if you, if you, and this is the danger, if you look at the pushback to Black Lives Matter, George, George Floyd's death, and we discussed this to some extent in our last podcast, but one of the main pushbacks to it is, oh, well, in the United Kingdom, it's not as bad as the United States. So racial oppression in Britain isn't as bad as the United States. So what are you complaining about? That's that's the argument. Now, the, the, the problem with that is that all forms of that kind of racial injustice need to be challenged. And it is dangerous, as you were rightly saying, for us to start playing these top trumps with this oppression's worse than that oppression. And because then you start to get, well, that kind of racism oppression, actually it's at the margin so you can let it go. The the mistake with that analysis, it seems to me, is that they're all connected. They are all connected, that they come from a common source. Now, the targets may be different, but they are connected. The The root of why people are going to be vilified because of a personal characteristic or a cultural characteristic, it comes from the same source. And that's why my analysis is similar to yours. You've got to challenge it wherever, because it's a, it's a common fight. I see. Yeah, and similarly, Robert, that's how your dad saw it. So I wonder what changed in terms of your dad clearly saw it and your dad, Paul, clearly saw it, that if you're fighting hate, you're fighting hate, right? You're not not setting up a league table and saying, well, we need to put more effort with these guys and the hate that they're feeling. But I, I just wonder if that has now changed, if you feel that has now changed. You know, we all got behind the Black Lives Matter moment after George Floyd. It's it's upsetting that it takes something like that for everybody to get behind that moment. The Wiley thing has brought up a bit more um, support for anti-Semitism and the letter that's gone out from all the music industry people about how we won't tolerate any forms of racism within the music industry. But I think there's a natural, a natural thing for people to protect their own first. And I think... So I don't think anything's changed. I just think that everybody's... I feel everybody's more frightened about what's going on. The the far right are drumming up, you know, the, the whole Brexit thing. What was it really about? Was it about financial independence? Was it about richer people getting richer? Or was it about immigration? It certainly felt like a lot of it was about immigration. Do you feel like an immigrant, Robert? Are you an immigrant? Yeah, I do. I mean, I... You know, I'm English, I'm proud of being English. British, proud of being British. I'm Jewish, proud of being Jewish. It's, do I feel... Does Jewish make you an outsider? Yeah, it feels... I I feel... I feel... I don't know. I mean, metaphorically, it does feel like sometimes you always want to have your bag packed. There is that thing of of never being secure, never being 100%. It's that thing of, you know, you talk to friends, even, you know, close friends who don't quite get it. Well... You know, there isn't really anti-Semitism anymore. 
And I say, well, there is. You just don't see it. You just don't hear it. And it is, it's even in the little jokes, you know, that go on everywhere. You know, people around you, you know, going out for breakfast, he wants a bacon sandwich. Oh, not you. Just, is it necessary? No. Is that <laughs> it's the answer to necessary that. Necessary to do? No. Is it... Well, yeah, you see, the it, argu- and, well, and well, it, this isn't like... the argument. It is necessary. You see, the whole point is that if we live in this highly racialized society, all of these little activities and these behavioral traits, they're all about social control. They're about putting you in your place. They're about showing you that you're not the same as them. And that's why they, I think that's why they circulate in, in the culture. And and that's why, you know, even stupid little things like that actually should be, I think, should be challenged. Because, you know, as a person of colour, we we get this constantly as well, with, with obviously different manifestations of it. But it's all part of the othering process, I think, Robert. This It's constantly reminding us that we are not part of of what it, what constitutes this myth of white Middle England. You know, that's the thing, I think. I know that, you know, it's, it, I think there was an attitude of, there was partly an attitude of, you know, I don't think my father was as brave as your father, Paul, in terms of standing up. And, I mean, he, you know, he stood and fought, you know, he stood and, he, in his late 70s, he was standing, and I was trying to get him not to, because he wasn't very well at the time, going and protesting at Jean-Marie Le Pen turning up to talk at a, at a hotel in Manchester, and he was standing outside protesting, and he almost got arrested for it, you know. So, for what reason? Arrested uh, for what reason? What was the oh, just, cause of the arrest? Obstru- I, I just think obstruction. As soon as you hear yeah, a, was... a criminal defence barrister, <laughs> as soon as he hears your, your father, your great father's been arrested, he almost wants to represent him from beyond. And, uh, I, w- I would represent him for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you see how Dexter just jumped in there immediately. As he's, um, as he's... It makes me angry. It makes me sad. I, I did. And I, I, you know, he, he didn't get arrested, thankfully, but he was, you know, the police tried to move him on and, 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 and everything else. And so, you know, he would do that, but I, he, I, he kind of, there was an element of this, you know, I think because of the way he had been brought up in, you know, in, you know, he was born just before your father, Paul, in 26, and he... He left Christmas Eve. He left Germany Christmas Eve, nineteen thirty-eight. So he was there for Kristallnacht and everything else. And so they tried to keep a very low profile and tried to not make a fuss over there. So I think his attitude was with us was, you know, make the fuss in the right place, not the wrong place. That's interesting you say that, Robert. Though that was part of the conversation that I'm sure you had, where there was sort of this thing about. My dad was always very much like, you can't stay quiet. And my mum was like, we have to keep a low profile because we don't want to upset anyone. We just got to keep ourselves to ourselves. You know, we keep with our people. We don't mix with everyone. And we keep, and there's a little, there was always a little bit of that. I feel that we, we, because of what happened in Germany and because we had to try to get out and people had to get out, there was this, you know, keep the low profile and, and, and we'd be okay and don't let everyone know what we're up to. And, and there's a little bit of that as well, which is kind of interesting rub compared to, you know, go out there and, and, and never let, let, let people say the wrong thing. And my mother was always like, you've got to keep, you know, don't, you know, don't react when someone says anything. And my dad was always like, headbutt them. <laughs> 
but it's, that was but, like, you know, okay, but this, different <laughs> different take on it. But you know, yeah. I was like, okay, well, I didn't know which way I was going to go, but you know, I would definitely vary it on the size of the person. That's for sure. But it, you know, it, it well, it, it's interesting that that I always found that I didn't want to be quiet about who I am, like and what I am, and what you know, I didn't care that sometimes walking to synagogue in Ryslip which was not a huge synagogue and a big community that we would get shouted But you know what, I think it's it's a survival strategy that minorities constantly have to grapple with. And it's interesting about what we do, because when you are in a minority group, in an in a environment that isn't hostile all the time, but has hostility, as we've seen with the Wiley incident in terms of Jewish people, it has hostility. What do you do? It is an adaptive mechanism, not to say anything, but, yeah, there comes a point, doesn't there, guys? There comes a point where, you know, we've got to do something else, it seems to me. Agreed. I think, you know, I think now, with the situation we're in and the situation we're facing, which is pre-Second World War conditions, which is going to happen by the middle of next year, we're going to see unemployment at a level we've never seen before. And, you know, the, 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 the fear that I have around what that could bring or what that will bring, and we can already see it in Poland, Hungary, Austria, we're seeing a growth of the, of the right like we've never seen. And we have to act and we have to act together. And then that's what's so important to me that last week was challenged and also that there's a bringing together process afterwards, that we're talking now to, to colleagues in a different way. And, and I'm really actively want to heal any, any sort of rift that there could be between us and the black executives and, you know, and feel that, you know, that we can't stand together because we have to. Like if we don't, we all should be working together against the forces of evil because I, and I truly believe we are against the forces of evil at this point because they're infiltrating and doing their work in a very clever way. They're slowly poisoning people. And that's what's so scary. So well, there's scary. a selective reading of history as well. I mean, I had someone, I think, post that, you know, the Jews finance the slave trade, right? Which is another yes, way, of course. That, that's and, very, very scary. It is really scary. And, you know, you have to challenge that with it's a very selective reading of history. And firstly, that's totally discounting the Arab involvement with the uh, slave trade, uh, which predates Western European countries' involvement in the slave trade, as well as, of course, African involvement and collaboration as well in the slave trade. These things are complicated, as we pointed out at the beginning, and people look for simplistic tropes, don't they, to try and exacerbate hatred amongst different groups. Um, Look, we're coming to the end of this. I'd like to kind of finish, I think, Dexter, shouldn't we, on, I guess, if if there is any optimism, Robert, what do, you, what do you feel kind of optimistic or how do you feel optimistic? 
and feel free to say I'm not optimistic at all. I'm not. I'm not trying to lead. I'm not trying to lead you into that. Was a leading question. That's such a leading. I know. Such a leading question. Exactly. Get the QC to put the questions. Yeah, exactly. Get the QC to put the questions. QCs ask leading questions by definition. They ask leading. They do. Yeah, they do. It's called the. It's called talking about privilege. It's called the Q. The Silk's privilege. Actually, QC's privilege. But yeah, so Robert, what 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 do where where are you at? with all of this I, I i i have to say i don't feel very optimistic at the moment about things i mean i'm i'm always positive that we can make a change but i think i think as i said earlier and as, as paul said you know we are heading into troubled times and troubled times mean mean that the old tropes come out because it's an easy it's an easy target it's an easy defense it's you know i can't fix what's right in my world let me find somebody else to blame for it so I worry. I worry for my children, who've been brought up fairly secular and not not religiously, and and I think that they won't. You know, as much as I try and talk to them about it, they, I don't believe you know that they get it quite the same way as maybe yours do, Paul. And I think, I think it's we just need to do more of this. And my optimism, I suppose, Nihal, comes from from people like you. When I saw the actually the first thing I. Found that the, the way I found out about the Wiley thing was from a tweet you'd made, and I saw that you that came up on Facebook or something, and and the argument you were having with some people, and it's people like you in the media that are going to help us through this and help you know on all levels and by having by calling people out when they're wrong and calling people out when they're saying things that just are blatantly not yeah, true. Yeah, facts don't care about your opinions. But it seems that we live in an age where actually opinions don't care about your facts. Paul, here's the leading question. Paul, what are you feeling happy, happy, joy, joy about when thinking about the future? I'm going to be even more explicit in how leading that question is. <laughs> no, look, I mean, I am sort of, from Sunday to today, like the start of the madness with Wiley to, to where we are today. I feel much better. I feel like well, I've had a couple of really amazing conversations about what what sort of prompted people not to sign the letter, which I think is massively important. I think that, you know, I am a bit scared. I, I, I am scared, but I'm determined that actually if, we, if, if I drive people crazy enough and I can bring people together with the work that we do and we're about to do with Rio Ferdinand and everyone else from this from our new Music Against Racism CIC that actually I could do something and, and, I, and I feel like if I don't do anything then I'd be depressed when I'm doing something I feel alright about it, I feel like we're doing things and and maybe naively I think that maybe we can do enough to to stem some of what's going to happen I totally believe that we're going to hit times that none of us have seen and like it's a hundred years of, of, of God knows what we're going to be up against so I am that that scares me the reality of what four million unemployed in this country could do and plus maybe more is is scaring me and and what that means the same as Robert for my children you know they they are aware but they're also worried, you know, they get followed around shops even more than they ever used to. They get grief from the police more than they used to because they're growing up and they're walking around in masks and, you know, do-rags on their heads. So it's like, but, you know, they've got to learn to live with, you know, with this and they understand that, you know, 
that it's scary. My fear is that we're living in silos, and if we don't, if we yeah. don't start, well, talking, I, I mean, we're in big trouble. I I couldn't agree more. You know, we're we're, we're living not only in intellectual and cultural silos, but to use another word, in 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 these ghettos. And the reason that we're living increasingly in those social spaces is because, in fact, it suits certain dominant groups to fragment the forces of opposition in that way, Paul. That's what's always happened. And, you know, I... Well, if I could do anything, it would be to have a paradigm shift. And I think it's what Robert was saying. And I do, Robert, I I agree that you accurately summarise the mechanism. And the mechanism is, in times of great stress, we look after our own, you know, and we focus upon those around us and what's really important. What I think the real trick is going to be is for us to understand that when Wiley attacks Jewish people, that is an attack on us. When people attack George Floyd and kill him in Minnesota, that is an attack on us. In a way which um, is about a wider notion of who we are as human beings. And I think that's the thing. The Romans understood they understood that the fundamental principle of control was divide and rule. Divide and rule. Anyway, look, guys, look, that's been a fantastic, fantastic conversation. I, I'm, well, we, I think we're both really grateful to the two of you for taking the time. We know that you're both incredibly busy, and it, but also I want to acknowledge that it, it can't have been an easy week for you but with everything that's happening and you know so massive respect for taking the time to speak to well two two brown boys actually now but you know thing is well, you know but the thing is guys we're on your side and your side is our side that's the way i see it your side is our side actually mm. and that's the way i see it yeah always well that's uh, there is no always. sides there are no sides we're all, we have to all We've all got to stand together, whatever we are, whoever we are. Otherwise, that's 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 the scary stuff right there when we're not, you know, really scary. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you. I'd like to ask you what you thought of this and what you thought of those two and the bringing of them together, two members of the Jewish community who didn't really know each other beforehand. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, it's. I think it's humbling and it's a good, for me, it's a good reality check. But also I think to connect, start to connect up the history because, you know, I've been doing a lot of stuff about Black Lives Matter and trying to understand how it is that our modern concept of racism exists and is so strong. And we need to go back, right the way back, to the 1400s in order to understand exactly how all this started now and what's interesting is that and what I think is interesting about this group of us four talking is that the modern concept of race and modern racism happened to both of our groups 
in the sense that what happened in Europe was Jewish people in Spain were converting to Christianity and they were get, becoming increasingly powerful. And the, the Catholic Spanish authorities wanted to do something about it. And so what did they do? They started this inquiry, which they called an inquisition, into pure blood. And so they started to police and exclude Jewish people because of this concept of impurity of blood and racism. And at the same time as that was happening to Jewish people in Iberia, at the same time, explorers were going off, including not only Columbus, but Bartolomeo Diaz, who shares my surname, was the first person to go around the Cape of Good Hope looking for India, the shipping route to India. And what did they do? What they did was they had to justify how it was that they could maintain being Christians, believing in mercy and forgiveness, and at the same time enslave people, steal their lands, divide their families, steal their children, and all the rest of it. And they accomplished that by creating this notion that people with skin of a different colour, like yours and mine, are inferior. And so I think that that's really interesting because when one looks at the modern concept of race, which was born in Europe in that century, really, you see that Jewish people and people of colour had that at, right at the outset. They had that in common. And that's something I think we need to remember. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's fascinating, Dexter, as always. You had such fascinating insights to our conversations Whereas I just ask leading questions around optimism. Um, <laughs> well, that, 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 optimism, optimism's good. Optimism's good. And I think we need to keep asking ourselves whether, whether we can be optimistic. But I think optimism also, I don't think it's just pie in the sky. There, there was an interesting article I, I read when I was at Harvard, which is that optimism and also compassion are almost like muscles that you have to keep working at them that they just don't exist in a vacuum and you it can be strengthened and it's about looking you know you always say to me Dexter you do terrible cases and you're everything you do is horrible and all the rest of it and yet you're optimistic it's about trying to identify the little wins for me this conversation was a win for me you speaking out last week was a win. I wouldn't have known about Wiley, I don't think, because it's not in my sphere. You stood, You were one of the first people, as far as I understood it, to speak out about it. And that's a win, Nihal. Dexter, it's always good to hang out with you, man. It's always good to hang out. And for people listening, thank you, firstly for getting involved in 100 Types of Human. We love the fact that you listen and make sure that you feed back to us, you know, how you feel about what we're doing, people that perhaps you feel that we should be talking to. You can email us, podcast at the100typesofhuman.com. Uh, you can also tweet us. We're on Twitter at 100 Types of Human. This has been a Fresh Air production. Dexter, any last words? Uh, you can even say goodbye if you wish. Uh, I, can, I can say goodbye, but also to say that you can also follow us uh, at the real Nihal on Twitter and at DexterDSQC. And we'd love to hear what you think about what we're 
trying to do what we're talking about. We want you to be part of the conversation. And the thing about it is we're stronger together. And, you know, as a result of the last podcast we did on Black Lives Matter, so many people have reached out to us. And, yeah, we I, now I think we can change things. And we're going to. Let's keep doing it. Agreed.